calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster and this is Hortense Mancini, part three of four, I think. There might be five. Or we might just do like a super special at the end to catch you up on what happened to some of the supporting characters. But anyway, we're in the midst of it. So part one, we learned about Hortense, her role as one of the Mazarinettes, the nieces of Cardinal Mazarin we heard about in part one her really profoundly awful child marriage to AC. Oh, actually, when you listen to this podcast, I don't know if you think that like I'm just a person who knows a lot of facts and I'm slowly every week telling you more of them. That's not true. What's happening is I spend like a week or two learning facts and then I record a podcast about them. So I'm, I'm like two to three weeks ahead of you vis-a-vis what do I know about a certain person. So while I was researching this, I found some facts that clarified some things from previous episodes. So this is kind of just a little PS to part one. A major thing that I learned during my research I've been doing this week about Hortense during this period is that AC, her odious husband, who just kind of like it's giving me like Terminator, what is it, like T-1000 or whatever, just like unrelentingly, never stopping, trying to get her back, just like almost superhuman in his obsession with her. Anyway, the whole thing with Hortense is that she needs a man to support her because that is the civilization in which she was living. Women couldn't own property, they couldn't have their own money, like even in her marriage, the only funds she had access to were for her own jewels. But And I was thinking, why is her story so, well, it's different from other people for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that other women we've looked at, I don't know, like Latisse Knowles or somebody. It's like when when the husband left, like they found a new husband and figured things out. But like AC was still married to her. So she couldn't find a husband. She had to find kind of patrons or like men who would just kind of help her out and give her like a roof over her head. And this is all because Louis XIV would just never give permission for their marriage to end. And what I learned this week, I think, which explains kind of why Louis XIV just wouldn't do that, is that AC was the richest man in France. And if you're like, well, isn't the king the richest man in France? No, because AC was one of Louis XIV's main creditors. He was the one who like gave the king money. He was like the bank for him. So like Louis would never be able to cross him because he needed that money from him. So anyway, that's some context that at least explained to me a bit like why Louis was so wishy-washy about this and just like you know he felt for Hortense maybe because she was like he remembered her and they were friends when they were younger or like leftover feelings of love from when he was in love with her sister Marie so he his whole thing was just like you know what sort it out amongst yourselves I'm not going to step in what that meant for Hortense was she just had to figure stuff out so part two we learned about her and Marie during the Roman Muse era and that ended with her going to deciding to go to England This week, we're looking at what happened when she went to England. And so one of the books I've been using throughout all of this, it's a really good book that I absolutely recommend to you, Mistresses, Sex and Scandal at the Court of Charles II by Linda Porter. And so Hortense has like two chapters in that book, which 
is great, and it's a book that I appreciate. And also, the fact that Hortense is like mostly known now as like one of the mistresses of Charles II is wild to me on the level of like Fredegan's tomb saying, a wife and mother. It's like, yeah, this is a thing she did, but she did like 25 other much more interesting things. Anyway, this week we're going to get into that era of her, the um, mistress of Charles II era. So the other sources I was still looking at, it's great. I'm really glad to have as many sources as I do. Frankly, anyone who gets involved with one of the British monarchs, like shout out to Tits Out Brigade in the UK, because like anything I need to research about English history, about British history, like there is a book about it. Like there are historians who just like, it's like, you know, this person is like, she was the housekeeper of like the third wife of whoever it's just like there's a book about it if you're like i want to know about the history of like what was the subway like in the year 1903 they're like well which route do you want to know like i have the ticket like british people take your history real seriously and that's i appreciate it you know just thinking back to some of the other episodes i've done this season like ronnie ditta where it's like well there's one source and it's in sanskrit so like let's find some people who interpreted it for me for hortense there's a wealth of things but also a lot of them are like, she was the mistress of Charles. And it's like, mm, she was so much more than that. Anyway, um, I also use this other book, which also good, also recommend. The King's Mistresses, The Liberated Lives of Marie Mancini, Princess Colonna, and her sister Hortense, Duchess Mazarin by Elizabeth C. Goldsmith. This week, I also looked at an article from History Extra by R.E. Pritchard about the sex scandals and betrayals at the court of Charles II. And Elisa Nicholson, who is an academic who is like literally doing research on Hortense right now. We connected over Twitter because I think she was just like, oh my God, like she's been dedicating her like off her research to this. And I'm just running out here being like, hey, do you want some merch that says Mezzarinettes? So like, it's kind of like when I interviewed Shelly Puhak about Fredigan and she was so excited. I had like in the merch store, like a bag that said that's so Fredigan. It's like if you're researching someone who is objectively kind of obscure and then someone like me comes along to be like woo we love it like you know it's exciting for her and for me anyway Annalisa Nicholson shared with me an article that she wrote also for History Extra leading ladies the many mistresses of Charles II wielded real political power so we're going to be talking some stuff from that as well and then because we're getting into Charles II her Charles II era there's a lot of context and you know we're doing these like multi-part episodes which I really appreciate and especially for this episode because there's so many there's so much context that really helps explain what Hortense is doing and why and what. So we're going to be talking about Charles II some more. The Rex Factor podcast, which is like one of my, it's an influential podcast to me. If you listen to it, you can kind of see where the idea for vulgar history came from. What they did is, um, it's two men, Graham and Allie in England. And they, the first season, they did every king of Britain, like starting from back in like, whatever, Alfred the Great era. And then the next season, they did all the monarchs of scotland and now they're doing all the um consorts anyway so i listened back to their episode about charles ii because that's where i feel like oh the connection between them and this podcast is the fact that they do a scale at the end with numerous categories and so the fredigand memorial scandalicious scale is kind of was influenced by them and doing that anyway so throughout all my research i had this feeling i'm just like why do i think charles ii is kind of awesome why do i have the sense that i just like i kind of like him and a, a lot of it is from, it can be traced back to this Rex Factor podcast where they, especially compared to other monarchs that they had studied, like, we're going to talk about Charles II in this episode, full disclosure, I have a crush on him now, and I will be objective, but like, it's getting into like Mark Anthony's thighs territory for me about Charles II. I just like, in terms of historical English kings, which is obviously like a problematic category of colonial people. I don't know. I kind of fuck with him. Also, lots of information from Wikipedia. And yeah, so we're getting into Hortense, her going to England phase. This is not just her like, this is not just her England era, because next week we're going to talk about what she did after she stopped being the mistress of Charles II. Like she just went to England and stayed there, which is like good for her because she had been, you know, to recap, she was in Rome until she was six and they went to France and she was trained up how to be like a court lady. Then she was married off at age 14 to her stalker. Um, and then she's just been spending what, like seven, eight years, just like 
on the run across Europe, like I'm happy for her to like sit down some roots, you know, like just in terms of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's like if you don't have a home, like if you don't know where you're going to go at the end of every day with a roof over your head, you can't, you don't have time to even start thinking about your like other psychological issues or whatever. Anyway, as per all of her trips, it took, she did not go as the crow flies from Chambéry to England. This wasn't just because she like liked to travel leisurely, which she did, but also because she had to avoid France altogether because AC's people were everywhere. Um, and as soon as he heard that she had left, he would send people to chase after her, which is why she left without warning and with only a few servants and without telling anyone that she was leaving so she could have a bit of a head start. And by now she had traveled around Europe so much. She had connections in various cities because she had this superpower of like everyone she met ever fell in love with her. So she could like, she had friends in different places, admirers, places she could go and stay. And she was also so famous now because of the whole thing with like the pictures of her, everybody was like selling. Oh, there's a story. I don't think I have it in here. I'll, I'll give you all the details next so you can have more time to research. But there's, there's one point, like two people broke into a duel over a picture of her. Like she was so famous. So even if she went to a place where people, she hadn't met them before, like they would know who she was because she was so beautiful and also wearing pants. In terms of the pants, I was thinking this week, like, so she wore pants to escape in the first place. Remember she had like the pants under her dress. And then from now on to the rest of her life, she just kind of like would alternate skirt sometimes, pants some other times, which some scholars say like, this is a hint towards her bisexuality. And I would say a stronger hint towards her bisexuality is her having affairs with people of different genders. But if you think about me, or maybe you also, I don't know, sometimes I like to wear a skirt. Sometimes I like to wear pants. I like to have the options. I think Hortense was just like, I like having the options, not just a skirt every day. Anyway, she was also, I think, very tall. One of the sources I read said that. So she's like, I'm just picturing kind of like an Angelina Jolie type person who's traveling around, who's just like so striking looking and tall and beautiful it's just like even if you don't know she's the famous Hortense Mancini you're just like ooh, who's that anyway so the news about where she went she knew would be published in the gazettes etc so just kind of knowing that she had to make a plan so that AC wouldn't read in those gazettes and be able to like cut her off somewhere so and she's also traveling across frankly a continent in the midst of various wars going through countries where she may or may not speak the language so like yeah she took a minute to get to England for all those reasons I just listed. Interestingly, so we have a re-emergence of a character from a previous episode. So her friend from the first time she was trapped in a convent and who was also maybe her lover, do you remember Marie Sidonie de Courcelles, who was the one they would like run around pulling pranks and stuff in like the first convent. And then Marie Sidonie had been trying to separate from her husband as well and then like helped her out with her legal stuff and things and they were like friends. So Marie Sidonie had also like just left her husband again because the first time we saw Marie Sidonie, she their friendship kind of ended when Marie Sidonie got back with her husband and then she couldn't help Hortense extricate herself from AC anymore. So she just left her own husband again and had to escape. And so she was going through Europe kind of like two weeks behind Hortense, like by coincidence, not like following her. Although I have to say, Marie Sidonie, kind of a hater. So she passed through Geneva, Switzerland. Two weeks after Hortense had been there, Marie Sidonie wrote, It is a great misfortune to find oneself pursued to all corners of the world. But what is extraordinary is that this woman triumphs over all her disgraces with an excess of folly that has never been seen. After experiencing this misfortune, she thinks only of pleasure. Arriving here, she was on horseback, wearing a wig and feathers, with twenty men in her escort, talking only of violins and hunting parties. In short, anything that gives pleasure. So Marie Sidonie is just like, she thinks... Hortense should be more serious about something, but like, I think Hortense needs to find pleasure where she can find it because see what I was saying about five minutes ago, her life has been chaotically stressful this whole time. And I respect that Hortense was just like, she's on the run, but she's like, guess what I like? Hunting parties. Guess what I like? Violence. Like, let's just like have fun. You don't, just because you're in a shitty situation doesn't mean she has to be like sad 24 seven. So anyway, forget the haters and Marie Sidonie pops up a few more times, mostly just like writing, just haterade about Hortense. So I don't know, is that evidence that they were lovers or that they weren't lovers or, but like everybody, like Hortense, nobody was just average in their feelings about her. People either like hated her intensely or were like, 
dedicated their life to being in love with her. Like that is the effect she had on people. Like honestly, a superpower or a curse. So she accepted that her life was now public, like that maybe wasn't the life she would have chosen, but she knew that it was. And so she used that to her benefit to try and um, better her chances to live independently and to get rid of AC for good by like leaning into the fame that she now had. At this point, just the way that she traveled around on horseback, like in pants. So she wasn't projecting the image like maybe Marie Sidonie thought she should of like, you know, like a poor woman victim who's, you know, like a deer being chased by hunters. She was like, she herself is the hunter. Hey, I don't know if you can hear the meow. My cat Hepburn is just here. She's like all about Hortense, apparently. So Hortense recast herself as Diana the hunter. And I mean, is a fair comparison. She had been painted a bunch of times, like, and would be more like Diana the hunter. She liked hunting. She was good at it. She wore pants. And so she just kind of showed up to be like, hey, guess what? It's me. I'm here. And I'm in charge of my life. She finally arrived in England on what is called a packet boat, which is, which I looked up. And from what I can understand, it's like a cargo slash mail ship. So like not a big or glamorous type thing. And she's traveling with her like small group of servants. Like we've got Nanon is there. Mustafa is there. Just kind of like her small entourage. The sea, it was very stormy. Not a super glamorous arrival. And that's kind of the thing about her too. It's like, she's not just pretending to be this like pants wearing, you know, heroine from a novel. She's like living the life. So she's along with six or seven servants. And kind of everyone, when she arrived, everyone was excited to have her around. She arrived on, let me see. So yeah, so she kind of like washed up on shore on the ship and then made her way to London, where she arrived New Year's Eve, 1665, on horseback, wet and muddy. And at first she was mistaken for a postal courier because she was wearing pants and also a long cloak. And I guess she was like covered in mud. It was quite an entrance. Everybody wrote about like, oh my God, she's here, the most famous, beautiful woman in all of Europe. She arrived in, on a horse in pants. They were like, she is the new queen of the Amazons, etc. And so she was famous when she arrived um, because like we talked about last time, her memoirs have been published in English, but also just like the gazettes talking about like her trip and what she was doing. Everyone knew that she was there and they're all kind of like, what's she doing there? And what she was doing there at its base level was she was basically a refugee seeking asylum, which was a situation that the king, Charles II, would recognize from his own years on the run, um, you know, hiding in a tree, etc. But also she had a couple reasons people were like, is this why she's here? So one of the reasons she was there was because Charles II is the king. His wife is Catherine of Braganza. We'll talk about her in a bit. And he had not had any legitimate children. He'd had a lot of illegitimate children, which we're also going to talk about. So his heir at this point, slash, I mean, spoiler, forever, is his younger brother, James. So there's kind of like, there's the king, and then there's the duke, who is James, who is his heir. James is the one who's the father of, I'm just re-reminding myself of all of this. So James, Charles's brother, his, from his first wife, his children are Mary, who becomes Mary from William and Mary, and Anne, who's Anne the First, who I did a podcast episode about. Mary of Medina is his second wife, who is the daughter of one of the Mazarinettes. So Mary of Medina is Hortense's cousin's daughter. So there's a family relationship there. Mary of Medina also, like, 17 years old, pregnant. So it's like, well, maybe Hortense is just in town to, like, be with her cousin, for sure. But everybody also knew that King Charles was, he liked to fuck. He had mistresses and he loved beautiful women. So people are also like, is she here to seduce the king? So everyone's just kind of like, what's she going to do next? Like, they're all just really excited. What she was in town for was she needed a roof over her head and some sort of financial stability while she continued to sort out her legal separation from AC. And I think I've told you this several times already, like, she needed a man who's going to be her patron, who's going to pay for her um, and give her a home. And that person did end up being Charles II. But before we explain how they reconnected, let's just catch up with what Charles II had been up to in the last 17 years since these two last saw each other. Interestingly, 17 years. Also the period of time when Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez, between their first and second engagement. So it's kind of, it's a little J-Fleck situation. So. To recap, 
Charles II had been on the run, hiding in a tree, shoes didn't fit him, sexy young Captain Cook. Oh, I was going to talk about this. So also, I I described last time his aesthetic is kind of like a sexy young Captain Hook with like the long black hair and that kind of, that kind of look. Turns out, so I learned from Tizzo Brigade member Rachel, that canonically, actually in the actual book, Peter Pan, like the original book, it says Captain Hook intentionally dressed like Charles II. Like maybe he was from that era, but then like time is weird in Neverland or whatever. So there's a reason why I think of him looking like a sexy young Captain Hook. And in fact, Captain Hook looks like an older Charles II. So Charles had tried to marry Hortense, like every man in the world at that time. He was denied by Mazarin and then against everyone's expectations, he like became king of England again. So that was 16 years ago. He took over after the whole Oliver Cromwell thing where like Oliver Cromwell took over, had Charles's dad beheaded, and then Cromwell took over and he was like, here's what's going to happen. There's going to be not Christmas. We're not going to have hot cross buns. There's not going to be theater. No one's going to have any fun and kind of a Puritan type situation. When Charles II came back, um, he was just like, here's what we're going to do. Have plays, have Christmas, have hot cross buns. And all the people who were more in the Cromwell sort of mindset moved over to America and became the Puritans. And that's where the evangelicals come from in America. So anyway, the people left over in England. So Charles II was, he, he oversaw what was called the Restoration Period, which is like not just the restoration like of the monarchy, but also the restoration of like theater and fun. So in the Rex Factor podcast about this, and they, they talk about this when they get into their like scoring part of things, like King Charles is known now as like the Merry Monarch because he had like mistresses and he like brought theater back and stuff. But like he had a really, a really steep task ahead of him, which is just like to make people fuck with the monarchy again in England after having not had it for a long time. Like he just needed to come in and be kind of like chill and cool and like make everybody be okay with it being a monarchy again. And guess what? He succeeded. Because guess what? It still is a monarchy. Yeah, so his brother James was a Catholic. um, And Charles was kind of like tempted by Catholicism, like spoiler on his deathbed, he became Catholic also. So he like, personally was cool with people being Catholics and also Protestants. But you know, like the law was not cool to Catholics. Anyway, Charles had been through a lot. He had been on the run. His father had been executed. He had to like, what all the things we talked about before, hiding in a tree. So he's just kind of like, after all that happened, he came back and he's a king now. He's like, guess what I'm going to do? Have fun. And this is where he reminds me, where I can see where he and Hortense would get along because she'd also been through this shit. And she was like, that's not going to stop me from like going to a party, having a nice time, playing some card games. So Charles II, tall, sexy, now Captain Hook age, Captain Hook, I guess I'm going to put a portrait. I'm going to share it on Instagram, so if you're following me, or if you're not following me, just go, or just Google Portraits of Charles II, because I think when I saw the, the, like, the portrait made of him age 30, when he became king, he's sitting there, and it's, like, got the most, like, big dick energy I've ever seen in an oldie-time portrait of a king, even more than Henry VIII. Um, Henry VIII, I feel like, overcompensating dick energy. James is just, like, I don't know, like, I'm going to say I have a little crush. So yeah, he took over. He's tall, he's gorgeous, and he likes to fuck. And he's just like, here's what's happening. Everyone's going to fuck everyone, and we're just going to have a nice time. And everyone's like, okay, great. So <laughs> um, some of the stuff we're going to get into vis-a-vis everyone fucking everyone. This is like, I don't know, like this story, a lot of it feels so contemporary to me. Like Hortense, like the kind of celebrity she has, it's giving me like Julia Fox, you know? It's like, a person who is just like people are intrigued by them. They're kind of like a muse. Like, even just like her on the run, like the domestic violence of it. It's like, anyway, so much of this feels contemporary to me. But the court of King Charles II is like, I had to just turn a switch in my head where I'm just thinking of a kind of like Cleopatra times in the sense of just, you know, how Cleopatra, it's like, well, this is a world in which, um, she just married her brother and everyone's cool with it. So like, let's just get on with it. King Charles's court is a place where it's like, everyone is fucking everyone. Very young people, like teenage age people are involved in this. Sometimes somebody will take a lover 
who is like the child of their previous lover. Like there's just like, that's what's happening. And I don't want to sit here in 2022 and like judge this. So I'm just going to kind of like present it kind of like, here's what it was like. So in that context, here's what was going on. Um, I don't want to apply a current understanding to this specific area. Anyway, you'll see what I mean soon. But just like everyone's fucking everyone. And that's just what it's like. So let's just tell the story. Okay, so Charles was known as the Merry Monarch because, like, so many people who've been through some shit, he had a good perspective on life and was just, like, he, you know, like Christina, he just knew, like, you can't just be business all the time. Pleasure, also important. So here's some other facts about Charles besides the fucking. 1666, I've talked about on this podcast before. That was a really bad year in England. That was the year there was Eam, the plague village. I did the pandemic super special. So plague broke out, and then also there was notably the Great Fire of London. Charles is the king, and this is where he... I don't... Okay, I saw the portrait of Charles, and I was just like, oh my, like this guy has got like BDE. What's going on? But then I read about him like hiding a tree and stuff, and I'm like, oh, this is like a guy who like... He's interesting... He's not, he like gets shit done. Anyway, so he steps up in the face of this fire in a way that not every English monarch would have, not the way that many of our contemporary leaders have in similar situations. So June 1665, how timely is this? It was unbearably hot. This encouraged, oh my God, this is also familiar. It encouraged the growth in, oh, sorry. This is, I'm reading highlights from an article from historyanswers.co.uk, written by Derek Wilson about Charles II and the Great Fire of London. So it was really hot, which encouraged the growth and spread of viruses bearing disease. And the, the viruses thrived, particularly wherever people lived together in cramped and unhygienic conditions. By the end of June 1665, 600 deaths from bubonic plague had been registered in London. This was merely a prelude. By September, 30,000 deaths were reported for the plague had done its worst. Probably three times that number had perished in London alone. So, like, this is what's going on. Bodies tumbled into mass graves, infected households locked in to prevent the spread of contagion. By the end of the year, the plague had run its course, just kind of like everyone who was going to die had died, I guess. But the treasury was empty. They were, I don't even know what war they're in. It was going badly. Charles was just kind of like, no wonder he had a nice time when he could. Like, this is the world he was, like, the king of. Anyway, so some preachers were like, all oh, this shitty stuff is happening, it's because our king likes to fuck, but whatever. So a fire began on a dark Sunday morning in a baker's oven in Pudding Lane near London Bridge. Samuel Pepys, who is a famous writer, right, um, roused himself at 7 a.m. Oh, Samuel Pepys, I'm just remembering from the whole book I read about this year. He was the one, it's like his record of the fire is a lot of what we know. So he woke up at 7 a.m. and he was not overly concerned by what he could see from his window. Only when news of the devastation arrived from alarmed messengers did he walk to the Tower of London to get a better vantage point, at which point he realized, oh shit. Let's see, he took a boat and rowed himself, or had himself rowed by someone else, to under London Bridge. London Bridge was on fire. This is where the song came from, presumably. And so then he grasped the extent of the catastrophe. A strong east wind was driving the flames into the heart of London. Citizens were swarming the riverbank to get themselves and their possessions into boats. So Pepys went to Westminster, where he found Charles, who was unaware of the crisis because the bend of the river obscured his view of the city. And it's kind of like, oh, what's he going to do? And this is where it's just like, guess what? Let's write a leadership book about being a good leader. Because he was like, I'm going to deal with this and not pretend it's not happening. So he sent word to the mayor, ordering him to pull down buildings in order to slow down the spread of the fire, and he promised to send troops to help this. In the afternoon, Charles personally went downriver to see the disaster for himself, where he went ashore and he talked with a crowd of refugees, getting information. He urged everyone that what they needed to do is just like pull down buildings in the path of where the fire was spreading, because it's like, yeah, I know that's your house, but like, if we can just like make the fire, that's how we're going to make the fire stop. He had some good firefighting instincts. When he was doing this, he was less than 100 meters from the blaze, but appeared careless of the danger in his eagerness to help. And this is where I think maybe because he had lived on the run for so long, he like, 
he got it you know he was like he had lived in the real world in a way that other kings before and since have not so he was just like he wasn't hiding in a bunker he was just like out there doing the stuff so he organized a group of people like soldiers and volunteers who were dispatched to do whatever was necessary he spent most of that day monday preventing what would have been another tragedy which was the strong wind was carrying a rain of sparks towards westminster and there's a possibility that the palace and all the government offices might be might catch on fire so he personally again he's like in this doing this he personally supervised the uh, fire breaks were put up and he sent out teams smothering embers that reached the western end of fleet street so next day tuesday him and his brother james i'm ordinarily not a fan but in this case james also showing up. So they were both on the scene. They rode to and fro, urging on the firefighters and sometimes dismounting to join uh, the chains of people passing buckets of water. He also carried a pouch of gold coins to give spontaneous rewards to men who he saw like really standing out with their helpfulness. This article says, Charles was everywhere. For more than 30 hours without a break, he rode around the northern parts of London, which had so far avoided the fire, he sent word downriver to the dockyard for bread to be brought from the navy stores to feed the homeless and destitute. He gave orders for the relief of the hundreds of citizens gathered in makeshift camps. He set up a relief fund. By the time he returned to Westminster Palace, his clothes were wet and muddy and his face black from soot. Yeah, you know, in a situation like this is good. What's her name? The Jacinda Arden. He's like a leader who like gets it and like takes things seriously and like does shit instead of just being like mm, i don't know what do my like advisors think like what do the people who give me money think he's in the shit and this is where like i respect this about him yeah so people flocked from other parts of england to try and help offer help to people like so many people were suddenly homeless let's see so even when charles was like we need to like you know blow up some of these houses we need to like to stop the fire in the tracks, people who own the houses were like, mm, no, but that's my house. And it's just like, that's the sort of shitty people you see around also today um, who are just being like, mm, no, I don't want to like, whatever, like not whatever. We're dealing with COVID. Monkeypox is on the scene. You know, there's assholes out there, but there's also people like Charles who are just like getting shit done. So this is just like a day by day situation. By Thursday, the wind had finally died down. That and the blowing up of the houses, which finally people agreed to do had brought to speed um, their response, and so the Great Fire was brought under control. But vigilance was still needed. Occasional bursts of flame shot up from the smoldering embers. So the king, again, he's not just like, great, I'm just gonna just go and like, fuck some people. No, he's like, he went to the Tower of London and he oversaw destruction of wooden buildings within the Tower of London because there was a possibility that the wind would change and then that could cause a secondary blaze in the part of the Tower of London where they like kept gunpowder stored which would have been an, a real unimaginable situation. So, yeah. And this is where people are just kind of like, we like our king. Like, this is like a good king. Yeah, like being on site, helping people out, like knowing what to do. Like, this is, this might have been part of where, like, the restoration of the monarchy, like, because he was just like, you want to have a king? Like, how about a guy who, like, is on the scene, like, throwing buckets of water on fire, like, legitimately helping out? Anyway. But then, as we've also seen in recent eras, it's like somebody could be on like really good at the first part of a crisis, but like, what are they going to do next? So the situation he was faced with now was like reconstructing the city and whether that would go well. And he was like keen to get in with this. After the fire, um, 383 acres of the city lay in ruins, 13,000 houses, 89 churches had been reduced to rubble. The challenge was massive. Again, because Charles had had this unconventional life for like a king. When he was like on the run slash traveling, he had visited lots of cities in other parts of Europe. So he was like, what if we rebuilt London but made it be like cool? What if we made it be like, this is kind of like, this is like Christina of Sweden wishes. This is how she, I think she saw herself as a monarch, but Charles was like actually doing it. He's like, what if we make London like a phoenix rising? He had a genuine interest in architecture and some skill and talent about it. Um, so a committee was set up. He attended a lot of their meetings. He had like a vision for the new city to just like build houses out of stone and brick. Anyway, there was enough money for that, whatever. He found an architect called Sir Christopher Wren who shared his aesthetic preferences. 
for the Baroque and Classical Revival fashions prevailing on the continent. So the king supported these drawings, but anyway, again, there just wasn't money for it because they had just been like through war and a giant war. Anyway, the rebuilding got underway quickly. So this is where it says St. Paul's give hints of what might have been. So St. Paul's Cathedral, Titsville Brigade London, let me know. Is that a cool looking building? Maybe. Anyway, so Sir Christopher Wren designed some other churches. And yeah, so in 1674, London presented the king with freedom of the city of London, who is the only reigning monarch ever to have received this honor. So here's the thing. He's great. In this situation, did great. Also, he was king. He changed the rules so that now women could act in plays instead of just only men being allowed to be actors. He also funded a lot of science stuff. And then, this is, sorry, this is like, I considered, should I do a So This Asshole Charles II? And I might, but I think it might be more like So This Dream Boat. Or maybe more like So This Asshole? Question mark? I'm not sure. It's just there's so many stories about him, and I want you to understand what he was like. So you understand what his relationship was like with Hortense. This is another story that I could not tell you. So this is the saga of Charles II and Thomas Blood, the jewel thief. This is another story where, like, the guys in Rex Hector were saying, like, Charles, like, he just had a good perspective of, like, the world and life. You know, like, other kings, which is not to say that other kings, I don't know. It's, like, because of the life he had lived, he had a broader perspective of, like, everything than so many other kings had had because they hadn't had this, like, forced gap year during which they were almost killed. So anyway, like, if you think about, I'm just going to always say Henry VIII because that's like the one that everyone knows. But it's like when you think about Henry VIII, if someone tried to steal the crown jewels while Henry VIII was king, Henry VIII would have like cut off their head or whatever. Even Elizabeth would have done that. But what did Charles II do when someone tried to steal the crown jewels? Was like, ho, ho, I admire your moxie, young man, and like gave him money and a job. So here's what happened. The source for this, although lots of people have written about it, is an article from history-uk.com written by Ben Johnson. So Thomas Blood was an Irish man born in County Meath in 1618, the son of a prosperous blacksmith. This is like, maybe I'll do a so this asshole Thomas Blood, because I'm just like, I can't tell you everything with Thomas Blood. I'm just going to stick to the jewel heist thing, but he was an adventurer. He was an Irish nationalist. He was involved in a lot of anti-king attempted revolutions. There's one point where he was like, had been sent to like assassinate Charles II, but then he saw him bathing in a river and he was just like, he's too hot, I can't do it. Understandable. So um, one day in 1671, Thomas Blood, so he decided he was going to steal the crown jewels. So he disguised himself as a parson. And so anyone, just like now I think, could like go to see the crown jewels on display. They're just like in a museum or whatever. So the guy who like watched over them was called Edwards. And Edwards, like, lived just above where the crown jewels were on display. Anyway, so blood went down, became friendly with Edwards. Then he returned at a later date with his wife. As they were leaving, Mrs. Blood claimed to have a violent stomachache, and she was taken to Edwards's apartment, just above where the crown jewels are, to rest. Um, the grateful, so Thomas Blood, again, disguised as Parson Blood, returned a few days later with four pairs of white gloves for Mrs. Edwards in appreciation for their kindness to his wife. So the Edwards family and Parson Blood became close friends and met frequently. Edwards had a pretty daughter, and Parson Blood proposed a meeting between his wealthy nephew and Edwards's daughter. So these two families are just like, aren't we great friends? Ho ho. On May 9th, 1671, Blood arrived at 7 a.m. with his, quote, nephew and two other men. While the nephew was getting to know Edwards' daughter, the others in the party expressed a desire to see the crown jewels. So Edwards led the way downstairs and unlocked the door to the room where they were kept. At that moment, Blood knocked Edwards unconscious with a mallet and stabbed him with a sword. So the, like, the grill, I guess that means kind of like the cage around the crown jewels, was removed. The crown orb and scepter were taken out. But you can't just, like, walk around with a giant crown. It's, like, pretty big. So he already had the mallet for smacking him with, and so they flattened the crown with a mallet, stuffed it into a bag, um, and then stuffed the orb down Blood's breeches which I'm going to assume were like a pantaloons situation, just like a lot of fabric. You wouldn't notice there's an orb in them. The scepter was too long to go in the bag, so Blood's brother-in-law tried to saw it in, in half, which did not work at this point. Edwards, who had been knocked out with a mallet and stabbed, not dead, 
He regained consciousness and began to shout, murder, treason. So Blood and his accomplices dropped the scepter, attempted to get away. But Blood was arrested as he tried to leave. Oh, this is at the Tower of London. Okay. As he tried to leave, he unsuccessfully tried to shoot one of the guards. So he was put into custody immediately, and he refused to answer questions, repeating stubbornly, I'll answer to none but the king himself. Because he knew that the king had a reputation for liking bold scoundrels, and he thought that his considerable Irish charm would save his neck, as it had done several times before in his life. Again, I'll, I'll tell the whole story of Thomas Blood um, on Patreon, and so this asshole. Also, there, there is like another article I read about this was suggesting that Thomas Blood might have been secretly, at this point, a secret sexy spy for the king, which would also be like why he only wanted to talk to the king, like the king potentially had hired him to steal the jewels because he needed money. Unclear. Anyway, Blood was taken for questioning by King Charles and also his brother James. King Charles was apparently amused by Blood's audacity. So Blood told him the crown jewels were not worth the 100,000 pounds they were valued at, but only 6,000 pounds. The king asked Blood, what if I should give you your life? And Blood replied, I would endeavor to deserve it, sire. And he was in fact pardoned. And he was also given Irish lands worth 500 pounds a year. And I think some sort of job. Maybe this is when he became a spy. Anyway, he became a familiar figure around London and made frequent appearances at a royal court. Edwards, recovered from his wounds, was rewarded by the king and lived to a ripe old age, recounting his part in the story of the theft of the jewels to all visitors to the tower. But this story, besides just being like a great heist-based story, is also just showing how Charles was like, hashtag not like other kings. He's just like, he, he respected people who were interesting, people with a good story. He was more, I don't know, open-minded or something. He was just more like, he saw the big picture of stuff, more so than just like, here's the rules and everyone should follow them, blah, blah, blah. So, the Merry Monarch. We're going to get into the fucking around part. So his court was known for, his royal court was known for, so like when he came over to be king and he like won being king again, like there'd been a lot of other people in exile at the same time as him, other like royal supporters, and they all came back too. And they were kind of like young, hot people who had been like in France and wherever this whole time. And they brought back with them a lot of admiration for the stuff that they had experienced in France. So, and one of the things that they had learned about in France, and remember, this is like the closest England and France were to date, like even now, because James's mom, I think, was French. It's like his mom was a sister of Louis XIV's mom or something like that. So like, they're really, really close. His sister, oh, fun fact. So his sister Henrietta was married to Philippe, who is, as we discussed in the Maya Dean episode, Prince Philippe is the trans sister of Louis XIV. So that is Charles's sister-in-law. Anyway, so the courts are like very, very connected. And he's like, he spent a lot of time in France and he's just like, let's, why don't we just like do things more like France? Like this is an opportunity, like the restoration, let's just like change some stuff around. So he created a new official role of the royal mistress. So like other English monarchs had had mistresses before, obviously. Um, again, Henry VIII, like even before he started marrying all the people, there was, what's her name? The one, you know, the one who had Henry Fitzroy, Bessie Blount. Is that right? Anyway, like kings had had mistresses before, but that was just kind of like on the down low sort of thing. But James wanted to have like the official role of royal mistress who like gets her own apartments and like has political power, which is like what France did. Yeah, and France official royal mistresses had long been given an official title and a position with political power. So being the mistress of the king was not like when we get to the scandalicious score for Hortense. Remember, that's the main character of this episode, not Charles. This is just like a diversion. Being mistress, being the royal mistress was not a scandalicious thing it's just kind of like here's what's up but also in france correct me if i'm wrong french tits up brigade members i think there was a thing where like it didn't matter who was the mother of the kid like if the mistress had a son that son could like become king whereas in england it's like it has to be the child of the official wife speaking of official wives so charles's wife was catherine of braganza who is from portugal and one of the things that is notable about her is that so portugal was among the first like western european countries to begin interacting with india so colonizing them but also trading with them 
So the Portuguese, the Vasco da Gama was like a Portuguese explorer who went to India. So Portugal and India at this point we're talking about had a relationship. And the people who from Portugal had gone to India, they were like, oh my God, chai is great. We love drinking chai. Like, let's just have some black tea for pleasure. Like people in Portugal had, you know, tea was like a medical thing, but it wasn't like, let's just drink tea because it tastes good. And this is a fun thing to do. But then they learned about chai. So then chai made its way from India to Portugal. So it's like all the rage in Portugal. Catherine Braganza made her way from Portugal to England. And so she brought with her the habit of drinking tea with sugar. And so because the queen was drinking like black tea with sugar, everybody wanted to be like her. And that's why people in England started drinking tea. And now here we are as a society and drinking tea is such a like major part of like English culture. It's all, it all happened here. Catherine Braganza slash the Portuguese conquest of India. So the whole thing, he's like, I want to have an official royal mistress too. Catherine Braganza is like, fine. Everyone is cool with it. This is not like a weird thing to do because all the people around him like had been in France and like they got it. So the history of official mistress had been a thing in France since like the medieval era. And it was a much sought after role, both for women wanting power and also for the family members who want power via their like female relative who was the mistress. So Annalisa Nicholson, the person who's doing a whole study of Hortense, um, she wrote that the job offered financial and social opportunities not only to the mistress herself, but also to her relatives, carving out a space for female agency in a patriarchal institution. So this is because, you know, in like other kings we've talked about on this podcast, like side note, did you know Hortense is the 50th person we've talked about? No wonder I can't remember people's names from past episodes. 50. Anyway, we've talked about other situations where it was like an important, the like master of the chamber pot or whatever. And that was like closer you were to the monarch when they were like in a vulnerable situation, like the more you could get your point of view across to them. So the mistress being the person who like goes to bed and like has sex with the king, like that was a person who could like communicate political suggestions from the people who supported the mistress. So when we think about, or when I think about the stereotypes that we have today about like, you know, rich men who have mistresses or whatever, it often seems like it's like some sort of, I don't know, like really young woman, like maybe some sort of like airhead type person, like all respect to airhead type people. But it tends to be, it's the same as when you see like Scott Disick or whoever, like dating some like 19 year old, you're like, oh, you're with that person who's like maybe a cool person, but not because they're so intelligent. It's like you're with them because they're young and hot. So that's often what we think a mistress is like. But Charles, in this French style, was looking for a mistress. His official mistresses were people were interesting. Um, they got involved in philanthropy. They were all smart. They're all clever. So I promise like we are getting to Hortense, but this is just like setting the scene for Hortense when she becomes a mistress. And you need to know about the other mistresses to understand her role as mistress. So here's a real short history of the other women who are mistresses before her. Barbara Villiers was her name when she was born. She got married. She became Barbara Palmer. So she uh, grew up among the royalists who, so like as a teen, she was attending like super secret sexy royalist meetings about like trying to get Charles be the king again. I say, let's do a Royal Diaries type book about her as a teen. So she married Roger Palmer, who's also a royalist. And then they hung out. This is during the era when Charles was in The Hague. And this is where they became lovers. Even though she was married, because again, that was just like, don't worry about it. That's just how things happened. So when Charles became king again, she came over like already his lover. And she was given rooms at the royal palace. Like everyone knew she was his lover. It was not a super secret, sexy scandal. It was like a very <laughs> out in the open, non-secret sexy non-scandal. So personality-wise, she's known for being very passionate, very demanding, being insatiable both sexually and financially. She was violent-tempered and dominated Charles in court life. That's just like what some people say. I think she sounds pretty great. Not to say that she wasn't like that, but a lot of people only think about how she was like that. She also had other lovers besides Charles, who was cool with that because just everyone is fucking everyone and it's like, don't worry about it. So she was not popular. A lot of the courtiers, because of how much money and power Charles gave her, 
and how she flaunted the money around. She had children by him. She had children by other people, maybe, or maybe by him. She claimed they're all by him because you get more money if you say it's the king's child. Anyway, her power and influence over the king eventually declined because of her overbearing behavior, her unpopularity, and just the sheer expense of paying her gambling debts. And so she spent less time at court as Charles kind of like got over her and other mistresses superseded her. The next one was Mole Davis, who is an actress. So Mole had been put in Charles's way by Barbara's cousin, who didn't like Barbara and wanted to replace her with a pawn of his own. So this cousin seems to go around to like see like who are the most, because remember actresses is like a new job you could have. So he went around to at least two different actresses being like, hey, how much would I have to pay you to become the king's new mistress? And Mole gave the lower bid, so he chose her. So when Charles made Mole, so like her name is Mole? Like I've not seen this as a name. M-O-L-L is her name. Gangster's Mole. And so this was, I think this was maybe a scandalous situation because she was like an actress, which was like at that point, like basically seen like a sex worker and also just like a commoner. Anyway, she's given an annuity of 200 pounds a year. Rooms to live in the palace. So when they became lovers, she retired from acting, performing only occasionally at court. And she gave birth to a daughter in 1669 named Lady Mary Tudor. But then another actress caught Charles's eye and stole him away from Mole. And this was maybe his most famous mistress, Nell Gwynn. So Nell Gwynn famously started off just like before she's even an actress. She was like selling oranges to crowds at London Theater. But then she's a good actress. And she was actually the other woman that Barbara's cousin had tried to get to be the mistress, but she asked for too much money. But then she caught the king's attention all on her own because they were seated near one another during a play and they exchanged smoldery gazes and it was on. So unlike Mole, Nell kept acting in plays even after she became the king's mistress, which was like shocking. But it made even more people come to see her plays because people wanted to see not just this like famous, talented actress, but they wanted to see like the king's mistress. She had a son by him named Charles and still kept acting, which was even more shocking because she was now the mother of a royal child. But she was just like, fuck off. I like acting. Here's what's happening. She eventually did retire, but remained involved in drama when she became the patron to Afra Ben, who is the first woman in England to make her living by being a writer and who is maybe also a spy and will maybe be the subject of a vulgar history episode someday and who will appear in this story again. Anyway, so this is what's happening. Charles is just like, got his mistresses. Meanwhile, over in France, Louis XIV, like saw this happening and he wanted to install a mistress who answered to him to be sort of like a mistress slash spy. So he could like keep an eye on Charles to see what was going on. And this leads us to Louise de Carouel. Louise de Carouel. So, Louise had first met Charles when she was a lady in waiting to his sister, Henrietta, who I just told you, Henrietta was married to uh, Prince Philippe. So, but then Henrietta died and Charles was like so sad about it. He like mourned her for a year. This is like the genuine sorrow at his sister's death is another thing. Like, I don't know. It's like, what is it? The bar is on the ground in terms of like men in these stories, especially kings being like, okay, people. But I'm just like, Charles had like a understandable human reaction. like. Look at this. Anyway, so he had met Louise when she was a lady in waiting to his sister. And then after Henrietta died, he asked Louis if he could bring Louise over from France to be lady in waiting to his wife, Catherine of Braganza. And Louis, so there's Louis the 14th, the king. Louise is the woman. So Louis the 14th knew that this basically meant Charles wanted to make Louise his new official mistress. So he like quickly put her on the royal payroll and paid her with jewels and luxuries for being his agent in England and reporting back to him. And in fact, Louise came over and like pretty much right away became his official mistress. Because she was French, she was distrust, disliked and distrusted by people in England. Like Charles was surrounded by these kind of like Francophile Catholic sympathizers. But like the regular ordinary people were like not, not fond of Louise for her whole French thing. And the fact how she was obviously a spy. The hatred, let's see, the hatred they felt for her was not just because of her France, but because of her notorious promiscuity, which again, it's like, but I think everyone was fucking with everyone. So anyway, one of his nicknames for her was Fubs, which means plump or chubby, but it was kind of like thick, T-H-I-C-C. It was like a compliment. 
it's like, hey, fubs, because like, uh, so the female form was very much in like the form of like a curvaceous woman was very much in fashion at this point. So in 1682, the royal yacht HMS Fubs, or sorry, HMY Fubs, in reference to her nickname, was built. Like, imagine, imagine Prince William or somebody nowadays, like, having a personal yacht that he calls, like, the HMS Thick. Like, Charles is hilarious. Anyway, so people who did not like France didn't like how much influence she was having over Charles, and they wanted to replace her with a new royal mistress who wouldn't be so loyal to France. Like, if only they could find someone who was beautiful, clever, but who, like, for some reason didn't like the king of France, maybe because he wouldn't let her divorce her terrible husband. So a guy called Ralph Montague. So a guy named Ralph Montague, who had known Hortense when she was spending time at the French court, thought of her immediately. He's like, what about this woman, this like Angelina Jolie, like super powered, hot person. And he heard that she needed a new place to live and someone to pay for her lifestyle. And he was like, this is perfect. That is how and why Hortense was invited over to England. I guess that's it for this week. Like, there's just so much to get into. I just, the context I think is so important, but there's also so many good stories to tell you. Why am I apologizing? It's like, I'm sorry, there's going to be more episodes. So yeah, next week we're going to pick up with like Hortense becomes the mistress of Charles II. So stay tuned for that. Thank you for listening to Vulgar History. Oh, also, I did ask in Hortense part one, and because I'm like a few weeks ahead in recording, um, I'm just able to say this now, but I asked, like, what are some other like famous groups of sisters, like like the Mazarinettes? And so a couple suggestions I got. Um, a few people mentioned the Mitford sisters. And there's also the Gabor sisters, like Jaja Gabor and her sisters. There's also the Schuyler sisters from American history, but also best known from Hamilton. Those are all great suggestions, but I don't think anyone, like the Mazarinettes were really a singular sort of thing. Oh, also, if you go to vulgarhistory.store, where there's all the vulgar history merch, I've got a new design there that is Les Mazarinettes, which I think is cute. It's, there's a mug, stickers, a cropped hoodie, a t-shirt, other things. Yeah, it's got sort of like an astrology-esque look to it, which will make more sense to you when I talk more about the connection between especially Marie Mancini and astrology, and then also the younger sister, Marianne. Anyway, if you're into the Mazarinettes, cute new merch there at vulgarhistory.store. Remember, when you're, if you're buying anything there, if you use code TITSOUT, you get free US shipping or TITSOUT10 for 10% off. Yeah, keep sending me feedback, suggestions of people for future episodes. There's a contact little button at vulgarhistory.com. Uh, you can also send me a message on Instagram where I'm at vulgarhistorypod um, and Twitter at vulgarhistory. If you want to hear the inevitable, so this asshole question mark about Charles II, um, but also Thomas Blood and other people, that's going to be at, if you join the Patreon, so patreon.com slash Writer. So that's where I do about every month or so a So This Asshole episode. The most recent one that I think will be out by the time you hear this is about Cardinal Mazarin himself, but there's a lot of interesting men in this story. That's also where we have episodes of Vulgar Peace Theater, where I'm joined by Lana Wood Johnson and Alison Epstein to talk about um, movies, costume dramas. The most recent one we did there was The Girl King, which is a movie about Christina of Sweden. And then the next one we're going to be doing is the Les Miserables movie starring Hugh Jackman. Anyway, so if you join the Patreon for at least $5 a month, you get access to those. But also, I, I don't think I mentioned this in a minute, if you join the Patreon at as low a price as a dollar a month, then you get early access to episodes of Vulgar History. So it's usually like four or five days early. So if you just can't wait to hear what happens next to Hortense, you can support me there on Patreon. Yeah, so next week we're going to be talking more about Hortense. This is the story that just keeps on giving. It's like, it's like everything. I feel about her the same way as when I first read about Frances Howard. I'm just like, this story has everything I love in a historical story and it just like it's just unrelenting the amount of cool stuff there is to talk to you about I honestly I thought I was gonna get further <laughs> through my notes today I did not but yeah next week we're gonna learn all about Hortense's time as the mistress of Charles II and that's not where her story ends so until next time keep your pants on 
keep your tits out, um, stay strong, and I'll talk to you again next week. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumaki. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.